Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Before the Downbeat, a musical podcast. I am your host, Ginger, man who would not do well on a cruise ship due to some motion sickness, Mackenzie. And I am joined today by the Canadian B. Arthur, the director extraordinaire, the John Adams of theater, the Sancho to my Don Quixote, the Tanya to my Rosie, uh, the Reno to my Billy, Autumn Smith. Wow, this gets more and more <laughs> epic every <laughs> single time. Hello, 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 everyone. Yes, hello. And Autumn, we have a very special guest. Yes, we do. Today. Someone who is a friend to both you and I, and who was one of my favorite professors while I was at York University, Ms. Marlies Schweitzer. Hello, Marlies. Hello, hello. Yay, Yay. we finally have you on for an episode. So happy to be here. <laughs> so Marlies, a little about you for our listeners. As, uh, as I previously noted, you are, you are a professor uh, within the theater department at York University. Some of the many classes you teach include uh, theater history, popular uh, performance, and musical theater. Actually, fun fact, it was your first lecture of your musical theater class that inspired our very first episode of the podcast. Aww. Where you broke down each of the different types of songs you find in a musical because not everybody knows the types of songs you find. There are people, not a lot of people know that, hey, these songs actually have a name and they have a purpose within the plot. So we actually used your lecture as our episode one template because Autumn and I were both like, well, we got to do like an intro of some kind. We can't just jump in cold turkey. For that. I would also like to say that Marlies is not uh, singularly a professor at York University. No, she's an But author. Marlies is the chair of oh. the Department of Theater at York Yes, University. exactly. Yeah, Marlies, you are the chair of the Theater Department at York and you are an author of several books, including When Broadway Was the Runaway, Theater, Fashion, and American Culture, Transatlantic Broadway, The Infrastructural Politics of Global Performance, and Bloody Tyrants, and Little Pickles, Stage Roles of Anglo-American Girls in the 19th Century. Like, talk about some great reads, let me tell you. <laughs> like, I didn't know you wrote like all these books. Like, I knew about your one all about theater, fashion, and American culture, because I remember you talking to us back in my second year when we were doing Theater World in Transition. That's right. Yeah, no, Bloody Tyrants of Little Pickles is my most recent. It just came out in November 2020. Okay. So okay. I don't know. Plug it. Plug it. Yeah. Plug it. Yeah, it's 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 a fun one about young girls playing Richard the Third and playing the character of Little Pickle as a as a naughty boy. Uh, there was a role written originally written for an adult actress and then kind of moved into the repertoire of girls. So it's tracing that the development of the different kinds of rules they played and the impact they had on audiences throughout Britain and uh, North America and even into the Caribbean. I did not know. Well, this book now, I know I'm really interested. Autumn, we're, we're, Autumn, we definitely have to start a, a, a Before the Downbeat book club so we can read this as a group and then have a group discussion with the author afterwards. I will, I will notify my clone self about yes. the book club. <laughs> yes. Uh, now, Marlies, a fun fact about you is you have a very Patti Lapone kind of start to your theater experience. Just like Patti Lapone, who started at the Patio Players in, in, in her neighborhood, you started in a basement production of Annie in the early 80s, where you played the roles of Molly, 
Miss Hannigan, and Grace. That's which, right. It's just a true feat to behold, I have to say. It was. The, the quick changes were, were something else. And, I, I can imagine. My 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 best friend got to play Annie, so I got the the you know rest of the roles, and then our other two friends who were in the in the production, they got the the dribs and drabs, and then my younger brother was cast as Rooster. Nice. Um, all he had to do was crow, so he was happy with that. He was about five at the time. Nice. Yeah. So that was my 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 moment of glory, the beginning of it all. Oh, I love it. So Otto, why don't you tell us what is the musical we are doing? Well, you know, it's a, a little bit of a nautical adventure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. One might call it delightful, delicious, delovely. Mm -hmm. um, we're doing anything goes. Yeah. Ta -da! And though I'm not a great master, I know that you'll come dance when you propose. Anything goes. The world has gone mad today. Yes, anything goes. And Autumn, anything you chose goes. this piece. So why was this the piece that you chose? Well, you know what? I'll tell you what sells me on this musical. It's the tap dancing. Got to say, is it the tap dancing? Tap dance number. And I'll never forget being a, you know, a younger version of myself and watching the Tony Awards. And Patti Lapone came out there and did Anything Goes. And this tap dance number was the be all and end all of tap dance numbers. Mm -hmm. So that is what sold me. And I actually <clears throat> performed in this as an angel at the Oshawa Little Theater. I was Virtue, ah. the dancing angel. Yeah. Was this around the same time you did Carousel? Uh, no, Carousel uh, predated this. Carousel was before. Okay. Yeah, I think this was like a year or two later. Okay. I did Virtue. So after your star ballet turn in Carousel, they brought you back for Anything Goes. Yeah, yeah. I was the resident dancer. That's, you know, fun facts. Fun facts, yes. <laughs> well, makes sense. I, mean... I do all the things. Mm -hmm. So uh, dance training came in handy. Like, mm -hmm. So it was great. And I, just, I, I love the music. I love mm. Cole Porter's music. It's frivolous, it's fun, but it it also like the the lyrics of anything goes I I I like. It's it's confrontational in a way of the time Absolutely. and place that it's in. So uh, that is why I chose it, even though it is a problematic musical. Mm -hmm. Yes, there are elements of this story that have not aged as nicely as no. others. Looking at you, not. whatever, peace, peace Blossom? No. What's plum Blossom. Plum Blossom. Looking at you, Plum Blossom. That is one plot element <laughs> well, that and we could probably cut and be okay with. Gypsy and Me song. Like, oh, God, just, that song. There are just some issues yes. Um, yes. with it. But so. the nice thing is, we will get into, you can revise this musical and create a whole new libretto to fit it. So. We could have a fifth libretto added to the 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 Autumn Smith group. libretto, as we'll call it. No, no. I mean, I love it, but this is look for me. It also has elements of Shakespearean comedy. 
right? It we'll has get into that. That's farcical, a very, yes. farcical element, mm. which is, you know, I don't usually go in for this kind of musical, but you don't. This, <laughs> no, I don't. I'm usually like the, oh, let's do rags or ragtime or yes. anything. Once on this big. island. Once on this island, secret garden. But yes. this, I don't know. It's the tap dancing. Uh, that's it. Tap dancing. <laughs> and tap dancing here. Mm -hmm. And then Marlise, you were one of the earliest people that I knew we had to get you on as a guest because you inspired our first episode and many other notes that I've been able to pull from my original notebook here. But we were, we were like, okay, we got to get Marlise on. So we sent you the list of all the schools we had coming up for the first few seasons. And this was the one that stood out to you that you were like, I got to come on and do this. So what was it about Anything Goes For You that made you want to come on and be a guest? Well, well, yeah, but first of all, I mean, it was almost like what, you know, what child do you love the most? There are so many musicals that I love, but this one really spoke to me. And why, why? I mean, I, I've been thinking a lot about that. And I think part of it does have to do with the nostalgic factor. Mm. You know, um, I think I first saw a local like community theater production of this in my late teens. Mm. And, um, but really my first encounter with Anything Goes was the 1985 Heinz ketchup commercial, I don't know if either of you are familiar with this. No. You're the top. Can yes. I sing a little bit of it? Yeah. Um, okay. The lyrics go, um, you're the top. You're a hot dog story. You're the top. You're the crown and glory. Of course, you perk up an everyday grilled cheese. Scrambled eggs adore you. Every time I pour you, you sure do beat. You add zest to macaroni dinner. You're the best. You're a saucy winner on meatloaf, sausage, and bologna kerplop. <laughs> Because what's ever on the bottom, you're the top. Yes. So that <laughs> those lyrics are burned into my brain from the not from 1985. Mm -hmm. As a, so as a child, that is my introduction to anything goes. I didn't know what you know at that time that it was from a musical. All I knew is that that was a cool jingle. Mm -hmm. And um, so then later when I came to this musical, I just kind of fell in love with it. Mm -hmm. And the Patti LuPone version, um, I'll talk a little bit about later, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, that just was one that I listened to obsessively over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And so I think I have a real fondness. And yet this is not a musical I've ever taught. And I'm not totally sure why. I think it has to do perhaps with... Uh, maybe with some of the, you know, political or, or, or uh, <laughs> troubling uh, representations mm -hmm. of um, ethnic racial stereotypes. Uh, but uh, I just, there's the tap dancing is amazing. The lyrics, the, I love the Cole Porter lyrics, the playfulness, the innuendo, mm -hmm. and just the general, I mean, you can't not listen to this musical and feel bright and sunny. It just lifts spirits. And so I, I love that aspect of the musical. So, Autumn, oh. uh, now that we know why you chose it, and Marlise has explained why she chose it, why don't you tell us generally what is the plot of Anything Goes? Because as we're going to discuss, this musical has uh, several different versions that have shown up. So give us the generalization of what is the plot All right. of this musical. We have lots of main characters here. So many characters. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Just hold, I'm gonna try to cut this as I go. Billy Crocker mm -hmm. has fallen in love with a beautiful girl he met at a party. Mm -hmm. His boss uh, is preparing to make a business deal and is going to travel to London on a boat. Um, on the same boat is the evangelist turned mm -hmm. nightclub singer. That's mm -hmm. an easy transition. Reno 
Sweeney. Reno and Billy mm -hmm. are friends mm -hmm. and she has feelings for him. And uh, that's where I get a kick out of you comes in. Mm -hmm. um, Billy uh, goes to the doc to say bon voyage to Reno and his mm -hmm. boss and sees the mysterious girl that he is so enamored by and uh, her mother and um, she is, uh, she, Hope Harcourt and her mother, Mrs. Harcourt, mm -hmm. are on the boat uh, on their way to England so she can marry her fiance, Lord Evelyn Oakley, <laughs> uh, a hapless British nobleman. Love Evelyn. Uh, Billy stows away on the ship with the help of Moonface uh, Martin, a second-rate gangster labeled public enemy number 13, and his girlfriend, Bonnie. <laughs> or sometimes known as Irma. Um, revivals. These two have disguised themselves as a minister and a missionary. Um, so it's so confusing. Such a farce. <laughs> such a um, and they all board the ship under their assumed identities. Mm -hmm. um, and Moonface and Bonnie, be being thankful, um, give... Uh, Billy, the assumed identity of their leader, Snake Eyes Johnson, who is public enemy number one. Public enemy. Um, so Billy one. is now Snake Eyes Johnson. He's got his passport and his mm -hmm. ticket. Mm -hmm. uh, and they leave Snake Eyes on, on the deck, uh, <laughs> waving goodbye. Yeah. Um, there is uh, lots of crazy uh, things that happen. Um, uh, let me see. Uh, Billy cons Evelyn into leaving him alone with Hope mm -hmm. because he sees Hope. So they have a moment alone and they sing all through the night. Beautiful. Or delightfully, um, depending Hope, on the version. Yeah. Or, yeah. Hope uh, prefers Billy, mm -hmm. but she insists that she must marry Evelyn, um, but gives no reason. Um, unbeknownst to Billy, her family's company is in financial trouble and a marriage to Evelyn would promote a merger and save it. This is what she knows, but Billy does not know. Did James Cameron just steal like plot elements of anything goes for Titanic? Like just hearing this plot. That's what I thought meeting this. <laughs> um, James Cameron, you have some answering to do. You know, there's so much answering to do on behalf of James Cameron. Let's not start there. <laughs> um, so... The ship's crew gets a cable from New York saying that public enemy number one is on board the ship. Then Moonface admits his true identity to Billy and he and Bonnie conspire to disguise Billy as a crew member since he is now presumed as public enemy number one. <laughs> well, three identities now for Billy. This is, it's really, it's, I, I want to condense it, but I can't. It's like Man of La Mancha. You got to go through the whole plot. To get they sing to a work. song. And Bonnie steals uh, uh, crew, ship crew clothes for Billy. Hope discusses her impending marriage with Evelyn. Both are not really happy about it. Billy asks Reno to help separate Evelyn and Hope. And Reno agrees, even though she's in love with him. Ah, oh, so sad. Uh, it's kind of like, what's that movie with Julia Roberts and, and Cameron? My best friend's Ed? wedding? That's the one. Yeah, it's kind of like that. <laughs> Billy and Reno reaffirm their friendship. Uh, you're the top. You're the Coliseum. Um, you're Mahatma Gandhi. Yeah. Reno tries to charm Evelyn and she succeeds. 
And he invites her for a drink in his cabin. Uh, she and the moon, moon face, plot that moon should burst into the cabin and discover Reno half naked in Evelyn's arms, providing sufficient reason for the breaking off of the engagement. This is all act one, by the way. Um, <laughs> I haven't gotten to the end of act one yet. Moon tries to invent some indecent explanation for the situation, but Evelyn insists that he would be quite pleased by any rumor depicting him as a passionate lover. <laughs> so, poor guy. Poor guy, Evelyn. I would love to play Evelyn. He is um, such a great I, I think that would be a good role for you. Uh, the crew discover that Billy is not a sailor, and Moon and Reno create a new disguise for him from a stolen pair of trousers, a jacket from a drunken passenger, and a haircut from Mrs. Harcourt's Pomeranian <laughs> and that they make into a beard. That's just my favorite part of this. Reno tells Billy that Evelyn has kissed her, and she is sure she will be Lady Oakley soon, since love me, uh, moves so quickly these days. I mean, literally anything goes. <laughs> Mrs. Harcourt, recognizing her dog's hair, angrily pulls off Billy's beard, and the crew and passengers see the wanted man, public enemy number one. Close act one. Uh, with Billy the big number anything good. celebrity act two much shorter billy is honored like he, he the, the gangster <laughs> is celebrated <laughs> as public enemy number one he tells the captain that moon who is disguised as a minister is helping him reform from his wicked ways moon is asked to lead a revival in the ship's lounge the passengers confess their sins to the reverend and Lord Evelyn admits to a one night stand with a young Chinese woman, Plum Blossom. This is <laughs> very problematic. Hope is not impressed with Billy's charade and uh, to please her, he confesses that he is not Snake Eye Johnson's, uh, Johnson, but Moonface attempts to compensate by revealing that he is not a minister, but public enemy <laughs> number 13. Uh, that that wow way down the line yeah the captain sends them both to the brig and reno restores the mood of the revival with blow gabriel blow yes. another one moon tries to cheer up billy billy doubts he will ever see hope again he and moon cannot leave until they return to america they have card playing uh chinese cellmates imprisoned for conning all the third class passengers out of their money oh it just gets worse uh, and they will be put ashore in england moon face and billy challenge them to a game of strip poker win their clothes and disguise themselves again very cool oh, that plot element Feature, i get this one not so much um, Billy, Moonface, Reno show up at Oakley's estate in the Chinese garb. Uh, Billy and Moon tell Oakley's uncle that they are the parents of Plum Blossom and threaten to publicize Evelyn's indiscretion if he does not marry her. Oakley offers to buy them off and Moonface gleefully accepts the cash, much to Billy and Reno's chagrin. <laughs> Billy and Reno find Hope and Evelyn who are both unhappy with the prospect, this is very Twelfth Night in a way, Yes. Uh, with the prospect of their matrimony, Hope declares that she desperately wants to marry Billy. B 
Billy spots Whitney and finally learns that Evelyn and Hope's planned marriage is really an awkward business merger. Billy realizes that Oakley is manipulating them all. Hope's company is really worth millions. Surprise! Woo-hoo. And Billy informs Whitney of the fact. Whitney offers to buy the business from Hope at an exorbitant price, and she accepts it. The marriage is called off since the merger is now impossible. Billy and Hope get married, as do Reno and Evelyn. They settled. They Those two settled. A cable <laughs> from the U.S. government fixes Billy's passport problems and declares Moonface harmless. I mean, he's only public enemy number 13. <laughs> uh, Moonface indignantly pockets Oakley's check and refuses to return it. Ta-da! The end. Thus ends the musical. Or at least that one version of the musical. That, well, there are multiple. That is the w- one version. Yeah. I mean, I could go into all the versions if you'd like. We don't have time. We don't have time. Take me back to Manhattan, yeah. as it were. Yeah. 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 All right. And uh, Autumn, why don't you tell us a little bit about the creative team? Well, Autumn, now that the uh, table is set, you've told us the plot. Why don't you tell us? who the creative team is. Cause this is a, this is a group that has some pretty big surprising names that people don't really remember were part of this musical besides Cole Porter. He's the one name everybody remembers, but That's the, right. there's a number of other people that went along with this show that are like, they're part of this. So uh, let's, let's start with our wondrous composer, Cole Albert Porter. Mm-hmm. Uh, June 9th, 1891 to October 15th, 1964. An American wonder kid, composer, songwriter. Many of his, uh, like a lot of his songs we know as standards. Mm -hmm. uh, And they're noted for witty, urbane lyrics. And he wrote uh, prolifically for Broadway and film. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I, I love this part of my job because I, I don't know a lot about these people initially. And this one was very surprising to me. The beginnings. Porter was born in Indiana. He was the only surviving child of a wealthy family. His father, Samuel Porter, was a druggist by trade. But his mother, Kate, was the, this is what people say, the indulged daughter of J.O. Cole the richest man in Indiana. <laughs> and J.O. Uh, Cole, uh, James Omar, was a coal and timber speculator who dominated the family. He built Sam and Kate a house on his Peru area property. So he was always close by, known as Wesley Farms. And after high school, Porter returned to his childhood home only for occasional visits. <laughs> Porter's mother doted on him. She was very strong-willed and began his musical training at an early age. He learned the violin at six, the piano at eight, and wrote his first operetta with the help of his mother at 10. Now, very Mozart that, in there. to me, that's kind of helicopter, early helicopter parenting <laughs> <laughs> that we didn't have a label for, but... Mm-hmm. I wonder who actually wrote it. Um, She falsified his recorded birth year, changing it from 1891 to 1893 to make him appear more 
precocious. <laughs> like helicopter parent number one. She uh, was a Mama Rose before Mama Rose. His father was shy, unassertive, and played a lesser role in his upbringing. But he was an amateur poet. So this may have influenced his son's gifts for rhyme and meter. Uh, his father was also a talented singer and pianist. Fun fact. Okay. He entered Yale College in 1909. But before that, his grandfather, J.O., really wanted him to be a lawyer. So that is what was pushed. I mean, good life choice. We're not going yeah, to no. put down lawyers. No, uh, you make the money. You you make the money. You you made good choices. Mm-hmm. You, made, you made good choices. So he went to Yale. He was a member of the Scroll and Key and Delta Kappa Epsilon uh, fraternity and contributed to Campus Humor magazine, the Yale Record. He was an early member of the Whiffenpuffs, an ah! acapella singing group, and he participated in many other music clubs. He was also elected president of the Yale Glee Club. Um, I just keep going to uh, Leah Michelle and, and, <laughs> and, you know, Monty. And, uh, I For some reason, I know it's very different, but I just imagine Cole Porter doing those types of things. Yes. He was also the principal soloist in the Glee Club. And he wrote 300 songs while he was at Yale. Um, during cow. college, 300, I know. Uh, he acquainted himself with New York City's vibrant nightlife. Mm-hmm. Taking the train there for dinner, theater, and nights on the town with his classmates on the regular. Nice. He also wrote musical comedy scores for his fraternity. And he went to Harvard, apparently, too. He wrote Cora and the Villains Still Pursued Her, The Pot of Gold and the Kaleidoscope, and Paranoia, which helped him prepare for Broadway and Hollywood. In 1915, his first song on Broadway, Esmeralda, appeared in the review Hands Up. And it was a quick success, which was immediately followed by disaster with his first Broadway production, which was See America's uh, See America First, a patriotic comedy opera modeled on Gilbert and Sullivan. Ooh. Interesting. I can't imagine wow. uh, Gilbert <laughs> and Sullivan's sensibility working in America for some reason. It's just very different, right? Yeah, very different styles there very doesn't work doesn't work no no the british sensibility would have been yeah no yeah no then he he spent two years in new york before going off to world war one 1917 when the u.s entered world war one he moved to paris to work for uh the duria relief organization um some people there is skepticism around what he did during the war but there uh claims that he worked for the french foreign legion and the Legion lists Porters as one of its soldiers and displays his portrait at the at a museum in Aubagne. Uh, so there's there's skepticism and speculation surrounding what he did, but he was there. He was in Paris. He was working for the war effort. He he contributed. Um while he was there, he maintained a luxury apartment in Paris where he entertained lavishly. His parties were extravagant and scandalous, with much, quote, much gay and bisexual activity, Italian nobility, cross-dressing, international musicians, and a large surplus of recreational drugs. (laughs) Sounds like a great part. 
What a cad. In 1918, he met Linda Lee Thomas, a rich Louis, uh, Louisville, Kentucky-born divorcee, eight years his senior. Uh, they married. Um, this was a marriage of convenience, obviously, because Cole Porter was gay. <laughs> but for Porter, it brought the heterosexual front and the performativity mm -hmm. that he needed to succeed in the outside world mm -hmm. and for her it retained her social position so it was it was really really great did she know that he was gay mm -hmm. oh yeah okay. okay oh yeah yeah, yeah. okay so it wasn't like um, she never knew there oh no she she there. definitely knew she, um she happily played played the beard to him uh-huh Oh, she was she was definitely a beard, and she like one of the most notable beards in history. Okay. So, Porter's big hit song was "Old Fashioned Garden" from the review Hitchiku in nineteen nineteen. That classic. It, yeah. Woo, Hitchiku. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of the dance step. Hitchiku step. Yep. Step. In nineteen twenty, he contributed to the music of several songs to the musical "A Night Out." In 1923, um, he collaborated with Gerald Murphy. He composed a short ballet originally titled Landed and then Within the Quota, satirically depicting um, uh, the adventures of an immigrant to America who becomes a film star. The work was written for the Ballet Suida, uh, Sui Sorry, Soudois. Porter's work in this ballet was one of the earliest symphonic jazz-based compositions, <laughs> predating Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue by four months, ah. and was well-received by both French and American reviewers after its premiere at the Théâtre de Champs-Élysées uh, in October 1923. So then he comes back to New York, and at the age of 36, Porter reintroduced himself to Broadway in 1928 mm -hmm. with the musical Paris, his first hit. This piece was uh, commissioned by Ray Goetz at the instigation of Goetz's wife and the show star Erine Bardoni. She had wanted Rodgers and Hart to write the song, but they were unavailable, so Porter stepped up. In August 1928, the his work on the show was interrupted by the death of his father, so he went back to Indiana. Um, the songs for the show include Let's Misbehave, Let's Do It, which was introduced by Bordoni. So that was a huge hit. After this, he went on to create the works such as 50 Million Frenchmen, Duberry Was a Lady, Can Can, Silk Stockings, Anything Goes, and Kiss Me, Kate. Autumn's um, favorite Cole Porter musical. I don't know it that well, so I can't. I can't. It's fun, really. Uh, judge, but Kiss Me Kate did win the first Tony ever for Broadway music. Correct. He worked prolifically in Broadway, obviously, and in film. Mm -hmm. Uh working with Fred Astaire, Gene Howard, uh, the lot. Ethel Merman. Ethel Merman, yes. Um, his He died uh, of kidney failure in 1964. So, 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 so he lived a good life. Holy jumping. Jumping What's Jehovah. What's happening? 
Um, so then we have this like series of four writers. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to do little ones on these. The first two writers, Guy Reginald Bolton, mm-hmm. Anglo-American playwright and writer of musical comedies, mm-hmm. born in England, educated in France and the U.S., Mm-hmm. He trained as an architect, but turned to writing. Mm-hmm. He was principally uh, the writing partner of P.J. Wodehouse, Wodehouse <laughs> and Fred Thompson, with whom he wrote 21 and 14 shows, respectively. Um, he also wrote with George Middleton. Mm-hmm. And among his other collaborators were George Grossmith, Ian Hay, and Weston and Lee. In the U.S., he worked with the Gershwins. Palmar and Ruby, and one Oscar Hammerstein II. Mm-hmm. Um, he is best known for his early work uh, at the Princess Theatre musicals during the First World War with uh, Woodhouse and composer Jerome Kern. Showboat. Did, among his 50 plays and musical, uh, most of which were concerning, considered frothy confections, <laughs> Uh, he did Primrose, Lady Be Good, and Anything Goes. Um, he also wrote stage adaptations of novels by Henry James and Somerset Maugham. So that is Guy Bolton, Sir Pelham Grenville Wardhouse, mm-hmm. uh, English author and one of the most widely read humorists of the 20th century, born in Guildford. Most of Woodhouse's fiction is set in his native UK, although he spent much of his life in the US and used New York and Hollywood as settings for some of his novels and short Mm -hmm. stories. Mm -hmm. Um, Let me just go down a little bit here. Uh, He was a prolific writer throughout his life, publishing more than 90 books, 40 plays, 200 short stories, and other writings between 1902 and 1974. Impressive. He used a mixture of Edwardian slang, quotations from the allusions uh, and allusions to numerous poets and several literary techniques to produce a prose style that has been compared to comic poetry and musical comedy. There you go. Good for That's old house. The other thing, uh, the other couple of things of note that he did were Showboat mm-hmm. and the plays The Thing. Which has seen a resurgence to place the thing. That's seen a recent kind of resurgence in popularity. Like it's been revived a lot more lately. So now listen, the um, anything goes as we're about to find out. It mm-hmm. has been was heavily revised mm-hmm. because there was a horrific um, naval accident. Yes, don't spoil it though. I have the whole story. Yeah, Mac will share that in detail. I'm sure in his twenty pages of notes. Yep. Uh, but this this catastrophe um, uh, had uh, introduced us to um, two new librettists who were more convenient to come in and help with uh, rewriting the piece so it wasn't insensitive to what was happening. Mm-hmm. So you get Howard Lindsay and Herman Nelk. And Howard Lindsay was also the director. Mm-hmm. Um, and Howard Lindsay was an American theatrical producer, playwright, librettist, director, and actor. Mm-hmm. Um, and he worked uh, in collaboration with, um, uh, 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 in the collaboration of Lindsay and Krauss. Mm-hmm. And he's noted for his performances with his wife, Dorothy Stickney, mm-hmm. in the long-running play Life with Father. <laughs> um 
he graduated from the Boston Latin School in 1907, and he played in this play. Um, and then together with uh, Russell Krauss, Lindsay won the Pulitzer mm -hmm. for his 1945 play, State of the Union, which was yes. adapted into a film directed by Frank Capra three years later. And Autumn, what Krauss and Lindsay uh, musical did they write the book for? What is the big one that they did? Ah, the hills are alive. Correct. <laughs> That's right. They contributed and wrote the book for The Sound of Music. A big, other big musical contribution that they did. But, it was, but they kind of got forced together. And it, it, it was very fruitful. It's probably mm -hmm. still fruitful for their legacy. Mm -hmm. um, in 1957, uh, uh, Howard... And his wife played the king and queen in the television musical Cinderella by Rodgers and Hammerstein. And then, of course, he, with Krauss, wrote The Sound of Music, mm -hmm. um, the book. Mm -hmm. uh, did I say the music? No. No, no, the no. Sound no. of Music. Yeah, yeah, that's not a music. Um, the book they, they also Actually, collaborated. No, the book is a script, because we're going to be referring to the book quite a bit this episode. So, for people who don't know, a book in a musical is the script. You have the lyrics, which are the words to the, to the songs, but then you have the book, which is the technical script of, of the piece. Russell Krauss was born in Ohio and he worked prolifically with one Howard Lindsay. He began his Broadway career in 1928 as an actor in the play Gentlemen of the Press. Mm -hmm. And then he penned the book for the musical The Gang's All Here, mm -hmm. collaborating with Frank McCoy, Maury uh, Reiskind and Oscar Hammertine the second. Then he mm -hmm. went to work prolifically with Howard mm -hmm. uh, to create all the great things that they did. He also was a publicist. He was, um, yeah, like, uh, he was on the marketing side of things. And then he kind of got brought back into yeah. writing with Anything Goes. That's right. And Krauss is the father of writer Timothy Krauss and named his actress daughter Lindsay Ann Krauss in an intentional tribute to his collaboration with Howard Lindsay. Oh. Ta-da! And there we go. That is our creative team. Okay, so now uh, light your cigarettes, take a leisurely walk along boat deck as I give you the production history of this epic, very, very confusing musical, uh, to say the least. So... <clears throat> Anything Goes began life as the brainchild of producer Vinton Friedley. Uh, and he was the producer who often worked with the composing team of the Gershwin brothers. However, after the flop of the 1933 musical, Pardon My English, Friedley had to get out of town very quickly to escape his creditors. Very Max Bialystok of him. As his production had gone over budget and now he was in debt to his creditors. So he's some uh, old ladies to help him out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so between 1933 and 1934, Freely spent a majority of his time on his yacht off the Pearls Islands, paying down his debts and planning his big comeback. He decided that his comeback should center around a show that was a comedy that had big theatrical names in it, including Victor Moore, William Gaxton, and Ethel Merman. So that was his idea. He's going to go, I, I got to get a big show of big names. So he had actually worked with Merman and given her her Broadway debut in his 1930 Gertrude musical, Girl Crazy. So that's why he was like, we got to get her back. She, 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 she's, got, she, she's got the voice of a blowhorn. 
she's perfect for, for, for a nautical musical. She can blow um, Gabriel Blow. Absolutely, she can. Uh, so to pen this big comeback, Friedley originally went to Jerome Kern, the composer of Showboat, uh, to do the score, with the book and lyrics being tackled by Guy Bolton and P.G. Woodhouse. Woodhouse, Woodhouse, potato, potato. Uh, yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, however, negotiations with Kern fell through. So Friedley then turned to the Gershwins to tackle the score, but they were busy writing that big hit, Porgy and Bess. So oh. they were unavailable. So Friedley turned to an up and coming rising star of the theater community of the 1930s, Mr. Cole Porter. And he took on not, he not, he not only took on the music, but also took on writing the lyrics, leaving uh, Bolton and Woodhouse to only tackle the book, aka the script. So Friedley uh, then traveled over to France once his debts were paid down on a cross on a cross uh, Atlantic luxury ocean liner uh, to visit uh, a Woodhouse who had uh, who, who had actually relocated to France to live out his days. Uh, and so Bolton and him all had a meeting there. And it was at that point they presented freely with their version of the script uh, that centered around a wacky tale of transatlantic crossing, a, crossing abroad, ocean liner, a wedding to be stopped, a disgruntled screenwriter concocting wacky disruptions on board, including a fake bomb scare, a, a various romantic obstacles. And uh, according to some sources, though it is debated, a shipwreck. Uh, however, uh, with this script, Freely reluctantly began was, was started um, began to do rehearsals. However, early on in the rehearsal process, the story came to light of the defunct ocean liner, the SS Moro Castle. Moro, 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 Mor yeah, Moro Castle, and it made headlines because of this tumultuous voyage it had. The ship was caught in a nor'easter, which is like a hurricane. Uh, it lost its, its captain due to a, an apparent heart attack. And between the journey to Havana and uh, New York, the ship caught fire, <laughs> where unfortunately 137 people died either in the fire or in the stampede to evacuate the ship. So freely upon reading this headline about this ocean liner turned disaster, uh, felt that misadventures in his script that featured a fake bomb scare and debatably a shipwreck scholars debate on whether or not that plot point was in there. Either way, Friedley uh, did not think the book worked anymore. He thought it was a very poor time to do a show like that. So, so <clears throat> with this new problem arising, Friedley then turned to his director, uh, Harold Lindsay, and the columnist slash press agent for the show, Russell Krauss, to write a new book for this musical. Uh, this pairing that was forced together actually proved to be quite fruitful as we discussed in production history with them turning to write several big hit plays, including the Pulitzer Prize winning play State of, the, State of the Union and the book for the musical The Sound of Music. So there you go. Those are alive. Damn right they are. So Lindsay and Krauss, they wrote the new book and they centered it around uh, Porter's completed score, which is why... Uh, uh, theater historians have credited uh, the musical being so easily revisable that basically the book wasn't so important. It's the score. 
So basically you can kind of rework songs and plot points to fit whatever you want. It's a very malleable piece of work. Um, so the new book contained less than a dozen lines of the original script by Woodhouse and uh, what's the other guy's name? Uh, Bolton. Bolton. Yeah. So a lot of their stuff got chopped. Uh, instead, the new script now centered around a, a romantic hijinks on the steamship, the SS American, which they, they, the new writers intended to be a metaphor for America itself. Uh, the reason why you would think after a shipwreck hits the headlines, you would not want to do a setting on a ship. However, because uh, the sets had already been built for the ship, uh, Friedley was like, you're not changing the damn setting. We're sticking to the boat. Uh, because he was so petrified about going over budget again. He was basically like, tight budget, we're sticking to the ship. It's already built. This is what we're doing. So they're like, okay, all right, we'll stick with the ship setting. Uh, but Lindsay and Krauss decided to fashion the book almost like a Shakespearean play, where the ship now takes the place of Shakespeare's woods, a place where, with no rules, where people find out who they really are and correct the mistakes they've made in, in the world of, of the city, a free place where lovers decouple and recouple. Uh, the, the character named Billy Crocker actually came from a college buddy of Porter's at Yale, uh, who had actually helped finance some of Porter's early shows. Hmm. The character of Moonface Martin was originally called Moonface Mooney, uh, but the name was changed during the Boston trials when an ominous message was personally delivered to the theater from a eccentric mobster in... in in New Jersey, who was not pleased to share his name with the comedic musical theater character. So, public enemy number 14? <laughs> potentially, <laughs> potentially. Uh, and that was kind of what I had for the original Broadway production. There wasn't a lot more you can find out. There's, there's not been a definitive book written about this musical history, which there should be. Yet. There, yes. But one thing, just just in hearing that history, one thing that stuck out for me is the emphasis on the ocean liner as mm -hmm. this space of possibility and transience, and mm -hmm. you know, uh, in between, you know, mm -hmm. the sort of liminal state yeah. of the of the ocean liner. And mm -hmm. I know I've done some research on ocean liners for a, a book project. My mm -hmm. actually transatlantic Broadway includes a whole chapter about ocean liners and the who was on them. And because yeah. in the early 20th century, it was, you know, agents mm -hmm. and managers and actors and mm -hmm. opera singers and this rapid, you know, mm -hmm. movement and early experiments in drama. Mm -hmm. But what um, Elizabeth Marbury, mm -hmm. who you might know as a early producer of the princess musicals, which I think yeah. there's some connection to what us and Bolton. Mm -hmm. And she was somebody who li basically lived on lived on an ocean liner and kind of was like this is kind of part of where she is she's is it america am i in europe like she's really identified herself as a transatlantic kind of um person as a, that, that was so critical to her identity mm -hmm. and i think and she is somebody who and i mentioned this because i think there's something about that movement and the possibility mm -hmm. that lends itself to the kind of queer experience in this era mm -hmm. and um for porter and, and this idea of possibility and the kinds of norms of society being somehow maybe not entirely released but somehow mm -hmm. there's a, a freedom that comes when you're on the ocean yeah and Anyway, so I just think that, that that's a really fascinating aspect of this musical, mm -hmm. that the setting, it's really, I think, important yeah. for everything else that comes, which I'm sure we'll get into when we, mm -hmm. when we start talking about the songs. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, ships, especially the 1920s, 1930s, were hugely immigrant story. Like, that, that's what ships represented. It was 
all these boats coming into Ellis Island, right? With all these uh, immigrants from Russia, from Europe, making the new life. It's all about the possibility. And, and during the voyage, who knows what happens? I mean, we do know what happened. It wasn't a great voyage for a lot of these people who immigrated. But at the same time, it's that journey of possibility. It's a journey of change. So yeah, the setting totally it's opens hope. the, yeah, it's hope. It was, a, hope. it was a time of hope. It was leaving uh, no hope to, to a there, place of hope. There's a whole song in the musical Ragtime about ships coming into Ellis Island and all about hope and possibility. It's passing at a moment in the distance. That's yep. the one. There That's is. The one. Two the ships passing in a moment. So good. The Kenzie um, likes to sing. The, I do. The songs. I love it. I do. I do. Got to throw some singing in there. But yes, okay. So the show did open uh, on November 21st, 1934. And the original production was at the Alvin Theater, now the Neil Simon Theater. And the cast included Broadway's original dame and diva, Ethel Merman as Reno Sweeney, William Gaxton as Billy Crocker, uh, Benita, Benita Hall as uh, Hope uh, Harcourt, who we just actually talked about her in our episode of South Pacific. That's right. Uh, yes. Uh, Victor Moore as Moonface Martin. Leslie Barry as Lord Evelyn Oakley. May Abbey as Ms. Uh, Harcourt. Mm-hmm. I had somebody name in there twice. Weird. Uh, the production ran for 420 performances becoming the fourth longest running musical of the 1930s. And that was even despite the Great Depression that was really crippling audiences and Broadway yeah. at the time. Uh, the show, however, didn't win any major awards because neither the Donaldson Awards nor the Tony Awards had been established yet. Right. So the original production, no awards. It was just good show. Um, and then the show has gone on to be one of the most revived pieces of American musical theater. Uh, notable revivals include the 1962 off-Broadway production that opened in May 1962 at the Orpheum Theater and starred Hal Linden as Billy Crocker, mm-hmm. Kenneth Mars, who many will know as the uh, Nazi playwright Franz Liebkin from the producers and also the voice of King Triton in The Little Mermaid, played mm-hmm. Sir Evelyn. Uh, and Eileen Rogers played Reno Sweeney. The production revised the script and included several plot and character changes from the film versions that had been done uh, and and also brought in other Porter uh, songs from his other musicals. They kind of were swapped some songs in which we will get into. Uh, then there was the notable 1987 Broadway revival starring Patti LaPone as Reno Sweeney and the longest running Phantom in Phantom of the Opera, Howard McGillan as Billy Crocker. So there you go. Uh, Patti LaPone in her, once again, her glorious memoir recounts her audition experience where she showed up to the audition with a headshot of Ethel Merman. And right before she started the audition, she turned upstage, pulled the headshot out of her bag Held the, held the headshot up to her face and then turned around and sang her first bit of her audition with Ethel Merman's face in front of her. It got a big laugh from the creative team and she was cast almost immediately in the role of, of Reno Sweeney. Uh-huh. Patti LuPone also noted that this was one of her favorite rehearsal and uh, preview experiences because of the extended amount of preview time the producers gave the show, which allowed the cast to more cohesively solidify the show, allowing them to refine the jokes, the comedy of the piece, 
So when it opened, it came out really strong. It was a very uh, well-received production. It received 10 Tony nominations. Uh, however, it only won three because in the same year you had Phantom of the Opera and Into the Woods. And Patti Lapone was the favored actress to win Best Actress in the Musical. However, in a surprising upset, she lost to Joanna Gleason, Gleason. in Into the Woods. And she noted Rightfully said, so. Rightfully so. Patti okay. Lapone said, the Tony Award night arrived and I was dressed to the nines on my way to my big night. It had been eight years between nominations, eight years since my win for Evita. The company and I performed the musical number Anything Goes Live. My, my microphone was still on when I turned upstage at one point during the song, and the audience heard me, heard me well, oh my God, the nerves were so <laughs> intense. It was time for my category to be announced. I waited patiently as the nominees were read. And the 1988 Tony Award goes to dot, 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 Joanna Gleason for Into the Woods. I sat there and watched Joanna pick up her award. During her acceptance speech, I felt like I was having a flashback on an acid trip. She looked like the Tin Man from The Wizard of Oz. What happened? I was supposed to win. It was a bad night for me. Another lesson learned. Don't believe your own press. Somewhere, give it time, there's a banana peel with your name on it. <laughs> she is such a diva. She like, she is... <laughs> I thought you were going to say something like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Joanna Gleason was amazing. Nope. She totally she lays it all out. It. She probably didn't even see Into the Woods. Well, how could she? She was performing eight, eight, eight shows a week at the same time. No, there's the only days off some, or... some <laughs> departure where they can see each other. No, Neither I don't way. buy it. Neither Take a way. day off. Understudies need work. It's great. Go see Joanna Gleason. And Patty, you will understand why she be here. I'm sure Patty understood. It's just very funny that at the time she believed her own hype, which she well, listened. It's a good lesson, everybody. Do not believe your own hype. And the production ran a total of 784 performances. Wow. So a very successful revival. Uh, as noted, there was 89 Western revival with Elaine Page. And then in 2002, there was a one-night concert done at the Vivian Beaumont Theater with Patti Lapone and Howard McGillen reprising their roles as Reno and Billy. And the wonderful <coughs> Boyd Gaines came on to play Lord Evelyn Oakley. Uh -huh. uh, and then in 2003, Trevor Nunn did a revival of uh, Anything Goes. And then in 2011, there was the Sutton Foster and Joel Grey revival that was directed by Kathleen Marshall the sister of Chicago film director, Rob Marshall. And this production uh, opened on April the 7th, 2011 at the Stephen Sondheim Theater and received positive mm -hmm. reviews, nine Tony Award nominations, including for Best Actress in the Musical, Best Director, and Best Revival. The production won for Best Revival, Best Choreography for, for Ms. Marshall, and Sonna Foster won her second Tony Award for Best Actress in a Leading Role in a Musical. After Thoroughly Modern. After Thoroughly Modern. Now, uh, however, Sutton Foster did have to step away from fr from the production for a brief time uh, because she had to go film a TV pilot. So they brought in the wonderful Stephanie J. Block to replace yeah. her. And then Sutton Foster's uh, uh, came back. However, the show was picked up. So then she departed the show completely and uh, Stephanie J. Block got brought back. And the show closed on, uh, was supposed to close on July 31st, 2011. 
However, it, it got extended to April 29th, 2012. So basically they got an extra year uh, of, of runs. Uh, it was actually extended two more times and actually eventually did close on April the 8th, 2012 after running 521 performances and 32 previews. So a very successful, another revival. It, it, this show sells. Uh, it was recently announced during COVID that a revival is currently being mounted in the West End in 2021. Ba directed uh, again by Kathleen Marshall based on the 2011 Roundabout Theatre Company production uh, that will open at the Barbican Theatre where Lame is opened uh, mm -hmm. all those years ago. And it will, it will start on May the 8th for a limited time to August the 22nd, 2021. And it will start Megan Mullally as Reno Sweeney. Oh, that's mm -hmm. good. So as noted, this show has been revived, re revived and revised throughout its different revivals. This uh, follows the same line as shows like Showboat, Cabaret, Hair, Pippin, and Chess, where there is no single definitive version of the, of, of the script book. Uh, it, it is one that is very malleable. So Anything Goes actually has four librettos people can choose from currently. There is the original 1934 libretto, the 1962 off-Broadway libretto. There is the 1987 revival libretto and the 2011 revival libretto. That you can pick and choose from apparently you know what anything goes you can write your own you very well you very well could so yeah the story uh that isn't normally like isn't revised as much as the script and the uh, or sorry as the score is the score is usually the part of the show that gets a bigger re revision that's done Ooh. um yeah so the 1934 87 and 2011 um librettos are all very similar and it's the 62 version that is the least similar and had the biggest changes. So within these changes, it includes changing the opening number from You're the Top to the opening kind of Boing Voyage number. Instead, they moved the song You're the Top to a to later in Act One and had it where Reno now sings it to Evelyn, who she is starting to fall for, giving the song more giving the song a more plot-driven element versus just a nice opening ditty for Reno Sweeney to sing. Uh, the first act one uh, lover duet between Billy and Hope called All Through the Night is replaced uh, with the smart-ass playful duet It's the Lovely, which originated in Porter's 1936 show Red Hot and Blue. That's right. Mm -hmm. Instead, All Through the Night is, an, is now moved to a second act duet between these two lovers when now the relationship is fractured. And so mm -hmm. while they sing the song, they are now separated both physically and emotionally and it's not to, yeah and it's not to the very end of the song where they actually do sing in tandem octaves apart from each other and thus giving thus giving the supposed audience the hope that this relationship can be re can, can be re can be rekindled um so that was the other change they also swapped out where are the men uh with heaven hop from the 1928 porter show paris and this was meant because uh, uh, dancer Marjorie Gray was playing the role of Bonnie in the 1962 production. They wanted a bigger dance number to highlight her. So they brought in Heaven Hop to do that. Uh, then with the song- the Angels. Mm -hmm. Yes, with the Angels, correct. Uh, then there is the popular song Friendship, which originally was in the 1939 musical, Dewberry Was a Lady. Uh, and in the original Anything Goes script, uh, the, the song You're the Top is in place of friendship. 
and it's a song between Reno and Billy. However, in the 1962 version, You're the Top was moved to a, to a later point in the show, and uh, Friendship was brought in as a, as a trio song between Reno, Mooney, and Billy to sing. Uh, however, in subsequent revivals, the song has now either become a duet between Reno and Mooney in the 2011 revival or between Reno and Billy in the 1987 revival. Uh, the song Let's Misbehave was cut from Porter's 1928 musical Paris and was rescued from Porter's trunk of songs for the 1962 version and was given to Reno and Sir Evelyn as a romantic duet to further their romantic plotline in the second act replacing the gypsy song we're going to get into later. So yeah, those are kind of the big plot changes. But either way, there are many versions of this show that you can pick yeah. and choose from or rewrite yourself. So there's also been several film adaptations of this, of this musical. Uh, in 1936, Paramount did a film version starring Ethel Merman as Reno and Bing Cos Crosby as Billy Crocker. Uh, and this film altered the plot and, and added new songs from Hoagie Carmichael, Richard A. Whitening, Leo Robin, and Friedrich uh, Hollander. So there you go. Some new songs were added, some plots were changed. Then the film was done again in 1956 by Paramount, also starring uh, uh, Bing Cosby. Crosby. Uh, but this time the plot was really changed, where now the story focused around Two showbiz partners, Billy Benson, a.k.a. Bing, Bing Crosby, and Ted Adams, who traveled to Paris to sign a dancer to a show, uh, to, to their new show. However, problems ensue when both men sign two dancers uh, to the show. And on the voyage back to America, they have to resolve the issue of this miscasting. That is a completely different plot line. <laughs> it is so like different. white Christmas mixed with something else. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's royal wedding or something. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. So that was that one. And then in 1954, there was a made for TV for version done with now a 46-year-old Ethel Merman reprising her role of Reno Sweeney. And this version starred Frank Sinatra as the hero character, renamed from Billy Crocker to Harry Dane. And Merman's good friend, Bert Lahr, played Moonface. Ah, uh, Bert Lahr, known as the... I don't know. Cowardly Lion. Oh, very good. Okay. Mm -hmm. I, actually, I can see him doing Moonface. Now she's coming on, I'm like, yeah, I can see that. Um, so that was broadcast on February 28th, 1954, as an episode of the Colgate Comedy Hour. And it was preserved in Cinemascope and was released on DVD for audiences in 2011. Oh. It is reported in later biographies that Merman and Sinatra did not get along well. Diva, Diva squared. Diva squared, indeed. Okay. Yeah. Okay, that's it for production history. Woo! Woo! Made it through. Out of the way. Yeah. Hey, Autumn, we gotta take a pause. A pause, a pause for applause. Ba -ba -ba. <laughs> well, we do like our applause on them, but we're actually taking a pause because we want to give a special moment and a shout out to one of our new partners. It's Stu over at the Sounds of Broadway radio station. So let's give a listen to Stu, who's got a great message for us. Take it away. Take it away, Stu. Stu. Where can you hear the best music from Off-Broadway, Broadway, and the London stage? 
The answer, soundsofbroadway.com, your 24-7 online Broadway music radio station. Listen to selections from well-known, popular, and more obscure musicals from the most diverse playlists anywhere. That's soundsofbroadway.com. Let's go on with the show. Thanks so much, Stu. Autumn, what do you say we get back to the episode? Let's do it. All right. On with the show. Da-da-da-da-da. All right, let's dock this ship and let's now talk about our first experiences with the show. Marlies, how did you first come to this musical? Well, I talked about the ketchup commercial. Yeah. So I won't talk about that again, but that was sort of my, my little t- first taste of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then last night, my husband reminded me of the opening of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom from 1984. Yes. The deeply, yep. so, you know, Kate Capshaw yes. in Shanghai appearing. Yes. Singing Chinese, anyway. So that, yeah. but I don't think I saw that. I don't. I think I saw that maybe a little bit later than the mm-hmm. when it first premiered. Mm-hmm. So my first actual experience was a community theater production in mm-hmm. Victoria, BC, and I believe I attended it with my mom in my late teens. I don't remember too much about the show. I think I knew some of the actors from other experiences. I was starting to sort of audition in the local, you know, amateur community theater circuit. Mm-hmm. So you kind of get to know people. Um, I had uh, some experiences in um, choruses for the Victoria Operatic Society and really to get into a VOS <laughs> show was a huge achievement by yeah. community theater standards. You got yeah. to perform in the big downtown theater mm-hmm. and um, I was a nun in the Sound of Music. Just a, nice. yes, That was one of my fun, fun experiences. But um, Anything Goes wasn't a VOS production. I think it may have been affiliated with kaleidoscope theater which typically produce sort of theater for young audiences but mm-hmm. i think this may have been like a summer project i'm not i'm not 100 sure i don't have my program here uh, but i have a vivid memory of um, the, being in the theater space and i have some flashes of moments like be like the bluebird i remember mm-hmm. sort of where it was staged i remember some of the lighting effects mm-hmm. uh, but really my my real introduction to this musical came by way of cast recording mm-hmm. cassette tape in my yellow Sony Walkman walking around. This was the 1987 production starring Patti LuPone as Reno Sweeney. And I would listen to it over and over and over while walking. And, um, you know, this was like pre-YouTube. So Mm -hmm. not, you know, not being able to have access to Broadway at the time and living in Victoria, I just Mm -hmm. was able to imagine staging and imagine dance numbers. And this was, I believe, my first introduction to Patty as well. Mm. Um, so that I think was it itself like kind of an amazing awakening. Um, so, who is this Beltris? Who is this? I mean, I I think it was even before I listened to Avita, <coughs> which I just kind of uh, ate up as soon as I listened to that one. But I loved her voice and the it's like the blend of the nasality, you know, like mm. kind of the nasal quality with this crystal clear belt as a, at the same time and. Yes. Um, I love her playful experimentation with diphthongs uh, <laughs> and her like out of this world vibrato. So like everything that is Patty. Uh, so I love that. So that's probably my first real introduction to Anything Goes via cassette tape. Um, how did you, I mean, I mean, you said you did Osho Little yeah. Theater Company. Do you have anything I else to add to that story? That already. Yeah. I did play the Angel Virtue. Yes. I think that was, I, re- I too remember that commercial though. You're the top one. I I totally put that out of my memory and started reciting it. Marley, that's amazing. I mean, I had heard these songs before uh, endeavoring into the musical. 
uh, like I get a kick out of you and things like that. Like my parents mm-hmm. used to listen to records all the time. So my parents had like Sinatra and all of these mm-hmm. things um, that we listened to mm-hmm. prolifically as children. So I heard them there first. And then um, I'm trying to think, I guess when I did it, I would have been 17. Mm-hmm. So it would have been like 1990. Mm-hmm. So uh, Patty would have just done it. So I would have seen Patty and I, I had, I too had the cassette mm-hmm. that, you know, when I was driving around in my little Chevette, mm-hmm. I would listen to a brown Chevette driving around Oshawa, belting out, anything goes, but that's, that's it. And then, uh, you know, um, doing it and then, yeah, it, it has like a sentimental value for me as well. So uh, I came to this from, I started with, as Marlies said, Temple of Doom. Kate Capshaw's character, Willie Scott, opens that movie singing in Mandarin in a, in a beautiful red sequin uh, Asian inspired gown. This song, Anything Goes. And she actually learned the tap dance that's done in that movie, but because the dress was so tight on her, she could not do the dance, which is why you only get to see her run down the ramp at the end pulling the red uh, flag because it, she just couldn't dance. However, the ele- the elephant ate that. It was an it was like a $5,000 costume dress that an elephant ate. Upset <laughs> when they when they were in the jungle, um, <coughs> but yes, that was how I first came to it was through the song "Anything Goes," sung by Kate Cabshaw in Mandarin, of all things. Uh, but then years after yeah. that movie came out, let's just state this now: years after it came out originally, yes. Well, yeah, I weren't around during the no, Patty Lapone uh, revival. No, so. no, 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 no. I when did I watch? I saw the first Indiana first time I started watching Indiana Jones was like 2006, 2007. And then I got hired in 2008 to be a follow spot operator for a local community theater production of Anything Goes. I love it. So I then got to watch old Marlies every time we come on. Yeah. There, if you go on the, if you type in Kevin Felt community players, Anything goes, you will find the cast photo and me sitting there in my blacks. But yes, so did that. And I remember that they actually followed the 1962 libretto because the song uh, Let's Misbehave was used in Act Two. So I do remember that they were more 62 than the other revivals. Mm-hmm. Uh, I then did watch the Patti Lapone Tony Award performance. And then I started hunting for the CD. And it wasn't until I was Christmas shopping in Dundas Square while at York University that I was able to find at the Dundas HMV the CD that I still have that I am not ever getting rid of because finding this was like, before iTunes had it, it was like, if you wanted a musical theater CD, because they're not popular, you had to like go hunting in HMV and hope that this one HMV had ordered a random CD for you. Yes, but yeah, so found the CD and then I vividly remember when the the Foster and Joel Grey uh, revival came. And I remember watching the press preview clips on broadway.com where, where, where they performed 
a friendship together. I will say my favorite recording between Ethel Merman, Elaine Page, Patti Lapone, Sun Foster is the Patti Lapone version. You cannot beat her performance. Like no. Patti Lapone all the way. It, no. It, it, if you got to choose one version to listen to, you go for you go for Patti Lapone. Yes. There we go. Okay. Top three songs. Let's get into this. And I guarantee you we're going to have a few that carry over from each other. So Marlise, what is your number one song? Uh, number one is You're the Top. You're the Top. You're Mahatma Gandhi. You're the Top. You're Napoleon Brandy. You're the purple light of a summer night in Spain. You're the National Gallery. You're Gobble Salary. Uh, because it was my gateway to anything goes. Did not commercial. make my list. Yeah, well, you see, and that is okay. I well, do love it. Again, because of the ketchup commercial. But on the surface, it's a really charming list song, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, and then it turns into a bit of like a, a not not quite a rap battle, but a battle. Yeah. So in some ways it sort of anticipates anything mm-hmm. you can do, I can do better. Yeah. Uh, from Annie Get Your Gun, which makes sense in some ways because of Merman. My, get, mm-hmm. my sense is that, you know, they knew that she could sing loudly. So if you gave her a song, a list that she can sing loudly with somebody else and get louder and louder, that was great. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, so it's a compliment, complimentary list song, mm-hmm. but it's, it's not a love song per se. Although of course, you know, we know that it's been used mm-hmm. for, for, I guess, potentially seductive purposes by Reno, but yeah. it's so subversive. It is. It's so mm-hmm. subversive in its, you know, blatant but celebratory queerness. I mean, if nothing else, it's an ode to tops and bottoms. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, and Cole Porter is—he's being so like openly explicit of, and um, just this—it's about you know chemistry and mm-hmm. celebrating who you are and 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 the consumer culture of the day, the mm-hmm. pop culture of the day, and kind of just being able to relish in the superficial mm-hmm. in many cases like you know Shakespeare is also referenced here so not entirely but high low this kind yeah. of thing of high low which I think is what musical is all about so you could see it as a metaphor for musicals but then also <coughs> just this the playfulness the innuendo mm-hmm. um and then just the the earworminess of it all yeah. yeah I love it oh well you brought a whole new appreciation to that song or that I didn't even oh. think about. Like I'm uh, now going to go back and listen to it. Yeah, I mean, I, was, I, I mean, I didn't even catch the whole innuendo of "You're the top." I didn't even oh. catch that one. Because if baby, I'm the bottom. You're the top. You're the top. Yeah. <laughs> Which I mean, it. I didn't even catch that sexual innuendo that Cole Porter clearly put in there. Like so smart, and you're absolutely right. This definitely precedes um, anything you can do. I can do better. Like it's a total battle battle listing song it i I can totally see why ethel merman would bring this style back because like it's easy to do she just has to talk sing her way through and throw in a few cultural references and she's good to go it's basically a park and bark i love it i love it autumn what is your number one um this is hard this one was hard um i like i I think i'm gonna put i get a kick out of you i get no kick
Did not make my list. That's my number one. Did it make your because, list? No, not that one. It's it's a pining. You know me. I love a good pining you song. Do. You do. And you know she goes through all these things that that Cole Porter would have been imbibing it at the time: champagne, mm-hmm. cocaine. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's 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 great and yeah. what i love about it again it's it's this high society um the partying at that time is kind of like partying today but today's it's just messy mm-hmm. like then i have this idea maybe it's a romanticized idea it probably is that you could take copious amounts of drugs and still be fabulous you know <laughs> There's a, there's a, there's a, an image, right? Um, some get a kick from cocaine. Well, I do, but you're better than that, right? It's, it's, um, it's, it's very performative, but there's a lot of pain in this song because she's not yeah. getting what she wants. And in the end, yeah, she hooks up with Evelyn. Anything, anything's possible, mm-hmm. but is that who she really loves? For me, she's kind of like the Olivia in Twelfth Night. Yeah, because she, she, Olivia yeah. does not fall in love with Sebastian. She falls in love with Viola, and she falls in love with the feminine sensibility mm-hmm. that Cesario presents to her. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting. I think, uh, I think she's at a point in her life where she settles, and um, th- th- it's sad. It's sad that she really wants him, but then decides to help him win hope. She pulls an eponine. Yeah. Damn, man. Terrible. Terrible. Yeah, I mean, it, it actually is a really sad song to open a musical with. Yeah. With Reno Sweeney sitting in a bar, longingly looking at Billy, singing, I get a kick out of you. Like, there is a tragic quality to Reno Sweeney that I don't know if anybody's ever played Reno Sweeney as a, <coughs> a tragic figure. Because a lot of times she's played as that brassy, alpha merman. Patty Lapone. Patty right? Lapone, rough tumble. It's not in Foster the same way. I don't know if they've ever played her as a genuine sad figure. Someone who's kind of because hmm. don't forget, she starts off as someone who is evangelical. Like she is a religious person who's now fallen into the nightlife. So by choice That's or by not or, a far fall. That's not a far fall. We're gonna get into that, don't worry. Um not a far fall. But it's the thing of she's had this trajectory of a, a, some type of, of fall, whether big or small, uh, into into the nightlife. So, yeah, there's but, pain but there that the I think is more interesting. Was celebrated that it was. was celebrated. So I think she's actually probably elevated her status in a way. Probably. Um, and they're both a performance. Mm-hmm. This is a one time where we actually get to see her be her true self. Yeah. Everything else is a performance for other people. She's, mm-hmm. you know, um, it's very, she's a great character. She's so mm-hmm. interesting in that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so my number one is Anything Goes. Times have changed And we've often rewound the clock Since the Puritans got a shock When they landed on Plymouth Rock shock they should try to stem instead of landing on Plymouth Rock Plymouth Rock would land on them 
glimpse of stocking was looked on as something shocking. But now God knows anything goes. Good authors, too, who once knew better words, now only use for letter words, writing prose. Anything goes. My number two. My number two. Perfect. Well, it was my number one because this is easy. If I was making a top 10 act one finale songs, easily makes the top five, maybe even top three. Like yeah. right away, this number's got it all, right? Right from the bump, 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 like that just opening downbeat pulsing brass. And then, and then it just starts with the times have changed. And we've often rewound the clock since the Puritans got a shock, since they landed on Plymouth Rock. And it's just, the lyrics are just so, they're, it's kind of like you can't stop the beat. It's it's a pre you can't stop the beat. Whereas <laughs> the same thing. Or, or it's the whole thing of anything goes because hey times they be a changing like even your, your puritan mother is off going to go off to i forget some of the lyrics but basically it's kind of like it or or what is it like if it's made west you like or be undressed you're like nobody will oppose and though i'm not a great romancer i know that you're bound to answer when i propose anything goes from a woman yeah right it, 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 it's, it's 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 that it's cole porter doing it's the you're the top it's that putting the female in a power position. And Reno Sweeney, like, is the band leader of this entire ship. Repeatedly, she is being the captain of, uh, of the ship in this. And this, oh, is yeah. such a, this is such a great sweeping number that, like, every time you watch the tap dance in the middle, it's like, how can these people not, like, drop dead after <laughs> doing the dance? And yet they, they tap, 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 tap. Once I was headed for hell. And Patty just comes in on that high A, I think. It and is. she sings after dancing, which yeah. is astronomical. And mm-hmm. smoked at the same time. And smoked at the same was, time. Sutton Foster, I watched Sutton Foster do this one from the 2011. or the Tony uh, Wirtz? Oh, Tony. She, she's, dance, she's dancing way more than Patty was. Yeah, I Patty mean, is very minimal in the dance. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So Patty isn't did. a tap dancer. Patty was like, I can do a little bit for you. Sutton Foster's like, hold my tap shoes. Yeah, all the, the pirouettes. <laughs> yeah, like she was. Yeah, this song. This song is a celebration of like it's it's a celebration of sex and mm-hmm. the joy of sex and excess and partying and it combines mm-hmm. as you're saying like these these jazz sounds mm-hmm. with the Broadway sound mm-hmm. and the, opening up for the top. Mm-hmm. I mean, and what's also interesting, I don't know if in th- thinking through the production history, mm-hmm. this 1934 is the same year that the um, Hayes Code comes in on mm-hmm. Hollywood. So I think that's I think it's a really interesting year if you look at popular culture more broadly in the US, mm-hmm. where there's this sense of, you know, we've gone too far, mm-hmm. the Hays Code needs to come in because the Hollywood films are producing too much, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. it's too illicit, it's too explicit, yeah. too much sex. Mm-hmm. So we're gonna clamp down here. But then they have anything goals goes where Paul Quarter is basically like flipping the bird to <laughs> any kind of attempts to rein him in and rein in his community, you know, anybody mm-hmm. in Broadway who wants mm-hmm. to celebrate that kind of a life. That's mm-hmm. right. Like, who are you? Anything goes, and we're gonna make it the you know, the end of our act. Mm-hmm. I think it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. And in that case, also really political. I think my initial sort of read on this musical is it isn't a political musical particularly. Mm-hmm. And yet if you look at that in the context of when it was written and for whom and the other communities and porters, you know, his his status as a gay man. Like, I think really he's saying a lot here. Yeah. 100% in context, mm-hmm. it's it's remarkable. And it is, it is political. Mm-hmm. And even the switching of partners mm-hmm. on the ship is a political statement, mm-hmm. right? Um, I, I, I love this. I love the song because it's, it's the la vie bohème of its time. 
way better than La Viva Web. La Viva Web is just a masturbatory device <laughs> theater piece. This actually has purpose. No, but but if you look at it in context of when it was written, mm-hmm. they're very similar. True. It was a, you know what? We're here, we're queer mm-hmm. in all the many ways um, that queerness is celebrated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Screw you, people. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's do a tap dance about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're going to make it palatable because there's a tap dance and a catchy <laughs> tune. Yes. But if you yeah. actually listen to those lyrics, right? Mm-hmm. In olden days, a glimpse of stalking was looked on as something shocking. But now God knows anything, anything goes. Yeah. Oof, la la. You're like, <laughs> yes, bring Love it that. on. Love that. So that was your number two. So my number two is Blow Gabriel Blow. That's my number three. Number three. Okay, perfect. Um, so I love this song because of how deceptive it is. Uh, it is a wonderful hypocritical hypocr- song. Like it totally reflects Reno Sweeney, who is supposedly this religious evangelicalist, but really she's a turned famous nightclub artist. And it's the whole thing of Reno pretending to be a pious religious figure covering for Moonface and Billy. And then you have Reno's when you come in with a big gospel, hallelujah, praise be to Jeebus, Reno, like religious number. And yet it's hollow. It's a party number. She's just rousing people into a party. It's not religious whatsoever. But yet the lyrics are like, praise be. But she's like, no, we're just here to have some party. And the entire ensemble of sinners, as she calls them, they're not out to actually get into the gates of, to the promised land. They just want to party there. Like they're not actually wanting to do the work. They're just like, let's just party and have fun and we'll get to the promised land that way. I, I think she is highlighting the close relationship between organized religion, organized religion mm-hmm. and the rest of the world. <laughs> right? Yeah, well, absolutely. It's, yeah. it's yeah. great. Yeah. It's such a good statement mm-hmm. on... Um, mm-hmm. Uh, don't cast the first stone. Yeah. Uh, and I I think Frank Lesser obviously uh, is riffing on this too in Guys and Dolls with Sit Down, You're Rocking the Boat. Sort of similar kind of, Mm -hmm. you know, feigned conversion experience Mm -hmm. and uh, this this in order to allow some illicit activity to Mm -hmm. continue. And uh, I think all the kind of character transformations that happen within Mm -hmm. it um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a brilliant, also, again, Porter kind of showing his chops. He's like, mm-hmm. oh, you want something in the revival style? I can do that. Mm-hmm. You know, you, also, what a great vehicle for star like Ethel Merman, you know, mm-hmm. another blast, blaster number. It's a banger. Yes. Um, also lends itself to a queer reading. What is Gabriel blowing after all? A horn. You know? A horn. Very <laughs> a phallic shape. Great big horn. <laughs> Yes. So, mm-hmm. I, yeah. So I think you know it's mm-hmm. it's you know can you see it perhaps as an apology to anything goes? 
you know, is it like a, oh, it's anything goes, but actually now we have this conversion. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think it's so. It's not a conversion because they don't believe in it. Exactly. It's an augmentation of their argument. Yeah. Yeah. I it's agree. Ha- yeah. It's Porter highlighting the hypocrisy of partying and organized religion where there, there, there's a very thin line between the two. And I mean, it's poor, propaganda. It, it is. is prop. It's just a, a, it's a propaganda song. That's what it is. Uh, that has hidden meaning. Yeah. Yeah. And, exactly. and confident. I mean, you can see also the, the importance of the, the con man, mm-hmm. con characters throughout mm-hmm. the people, including the, the Chinese characters who've conned the third class, third class passengers, <laughs> but at every level throughout this, it's like, there's some kind of con game going mm-hmm. on, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's a, a hope and her mother's con or, you know, mm-hmm. well, sort of, you know, they, they need to get in there, yeah. other kinds of cons happening. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone's a con artist. Yeah. Shakespearean fun. Yeah. Okay. My number three though, is public enemy number one. Autumn's like, of course, Mac would choose one of those random songs. Autumn shakes her head. It's not a long mowing song, Autumn, I will tell you now. Uh, But it is, I like it because it's a funny critique Cole Porter's making about how the public idolizes stardom. And it's the whole thing of the the entire crew and passengers are ecstatic about the celebrity of public enemy number one being on board the ship. And they're all saying a prayer, thanking God that they all can profit and I've now risen in class to now a new societal level because I now have the celebrity on board. And it's the same way now people go on celebrity cruises where you can go on and be with some B-list celebrity on a ship and go rub elbows with them. Like, it's yeah. Cole Porter basically, once again, flipping the bird to society going, like, <laughs> you all just idolize celebrity. And that's all you do. I mean, I mean, you'll happily take, apparently probably anyone who is actually probably a murderer but hey, you know what? It's okay. We're gonna like sign autographs, do pictures, say a Look prayer to him. Bundy. Look at Ted Bundy. Mm-hmm. Look at the popularity that he had. Yeah. Charles Manson. Yep. People love like they're true crime fanatics. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I will say this is a great way to open Act Two because you finish mm-hmm. with Anything Goes, and it's like you can't open the second act with another big production number. There's no way, like, you put them back to back, they're going to cancel each other out. So the trick is you put a funny, satirical, mild number to open act two that then sets up Blow Gabriel Blow, which is your technical big second act open number, but you give it a nice opening kind of ease into the second act. That's still Cole Porter being very cheeky with what he's doing. That people don't even realize how cheeky he's being with. What, he, what they're saying about public enemy number one. Of course, I think he's also making fun of religion that they're praying to God saying, thank you God for sending this celebrity to us because now we all get to dine in on our own celebrity for being on the ship with a celebrity. And we get to flirt with yep. danger. Mm-hmm. Sexy. Mm-hmm. Yep. Sexy. Yep. is sexy. Yep, indeed. Okay, let's get into the songs we either would skip or would cut. Autumn will let you start this one. What's the um, first on your list? Um, oh, Gypsy and Me. 
That is my number one as well. Marlisa didn't make girls. My list. number two. Hiding away, there's a little bit of gypsy in me that's never been found. Waiting to stay, there's a little bit of gypsy in me just hanging around. <laughs> Uh, do, do I need to state the obvious? It's just um, inappropriate. Like it's, it's yeah, it's blatantly inappropriate. Like I don't know why in 2011 they kept this song when they can easily replace it with the much better song "Let's Misbehave." That's a better That's way so of 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 setting up the pair of Reno and Evelyn because it actually yeah. gives them both a chance to flex their comedic chops as actors, as well as it gives them both the way of showing that awkward flirtation that these two have yeah this that, one is just yeah. it's oh it's so bad it's yeah it's playing on type and playing on you know from a very privileged perspective yeah like mm-hmm. like, like there's what yeah, yeah i mean we talked about the, a similar type of thing with the moorish dance in man of la mancha which also very problematic but as autumn said and pointed out rightfully that you can do that you just got to do that type of number correctly you can just address it keep it realistic not stereotypical this there is no saving yeah. this song no. it's like plum blossom you gotta like exercise those people from the plot like it, that. Has, it has more of a journey in la mancha than it does mm-hmm. yeah right yeah mm-hmm. this is just ethnic ventriloquism like it's yeah yeah i don't yeah. know why they yeah. brought this song back just stick it back in the porter trunk and let's never talk about it again <laughs> or you know what let's talk about it because as autumn says we never paint over the past We'll talk about that they use this song, mm-hmm. but we'll but when we're reviving the show again, because it will be revived, let's just put in Let's Misbehave. It's a yeah, mother- Let's Misbehave is a great number, too. Yeah. Let's misbehave. And you can do so much fun <coughs> comedic staging with that. That's great. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I still remember watching our community theater production, the two actors rolling around on the bed, kind of doing that chase of each other around the room. It's great. Yeah. It's it it's is cool. it is fun and there's a lot of farcical possibility yeah. in it mm-hmm. um and you could take it really far oh absolutely you which can. is great yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah so marlise what was your number one um be like the bluebird when your instinct tells you that disaster is approaching you faster and faster then be like the blue boy and sing tweet tweet tra la 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 that I, almost I, made my list i i can't stand it i it, i know it's a charm song but it's so slow it's so plotting i don't care about Moonface as a character mm-hmm. uh, at least not from what the production i've seen and i just so and Typically, the whoever's cast is not necessarily the like they're not necessarily cast for their voice. They're more yeah. ca- character actor. I mean, Joel mm-hmm. Gray, okay, but it's just so boring compared mm-hmm. to sort of the champagne popping of the other yeah. songs. And I think, but the problem is, it's an earworm. Mm-hmm. You know, it gets stuck in your head. It's it's like a happy talky talk from South Pacific, another yeah. like awful song. But <laughs> I, I can't get be like the bluebird out of my head. So I hate it for that reason. <laughs> We're going to be singing both of those all day today. I was humming it this morning in the shower. <laughs> be like the bluebird. 
and sing tweet tweet tra la 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 like it's and very also happy talk ready let's do it in a tandem <laughs> <laughs> happy talking talking happy talk talk about things you like to do oh, oh my gosh no. uh but oh my goodness yeah i mean th- that song is very actor dependent like joel gray's yeah. version is great the guy who does it in the patty lapone version skip yeah <laughs> like it's very character dependent on it's actor character dependent on how they do it and i think you got to pick up the tempo of that song like that song dies because of the something but I, the actor who did it in our community theater he actually had the orchestra pick up the tempo so yeah. he could actually be a little bit more breathless a little bit jumping yeah. off the boxes in, in the break like doing a little bit more to animate it so i think it's once again it's very staging and actor dependent on how good that song is because alone it doesn't it doesn't do much it's i assume fun. it was written before the curtain song right like yeah like a, like a down a friend friend like front of the lip of the stage yeah so they were doing something big behind I correct assume. yeah because this yeah this takes place after Moonface and billy are in the break so you yeah. got all of the big set of the ship and behind and this would be like as you said a down in front of curtain smaller set just yeah. basically have a character actor do his big number in front of the boxes yeah in a cage but it's yeah it's not a it's it's, it's definitely not a not a showstopper <laughs> yeah it's definitely not a showstopper to put it nicely like the bluebird. yeah mm-hmm. yeah no. yeah my number one though is all through the night me i don't like traditional love duets i find them boring it's and beautiful no i like it's lovely a hell of a lot more i will list, i am happy they swapped the songs in later revivals because it's the lovely yeah, fits better it's still there it's just later in act two it's later in act two and it's being and it's in a reprise so it's not as long i don't have to suffer through it as much oh, uh beautiful i love it i i much prefer it's still lovely i think it fits better like the whole show is very snappy Porter lyrics, and then you got all through the night, and it's like, <laughs> dear God, like which one of these is not like the other? Clearly, it's all through the night. It did. I think that's what makes it so great because I mean, if you have a, a wonderful soprano in, yeah. in, in your hope, then it gives yeah. <laughs> her finally something to do. True. And I think you know it's beautiful, but it's mm-hmm. also. Um, misleading like mm-hmm. it's this beautiful song like oh beautiful song but then like what is it it's all through the night it's basically about having sex all night like, True. i mean it's not it's about yeah. dreaming and fantasizing and hoping for sex all through the night yes but like, <laughs> it's i don't know yeah. i i think it's a nice yeah break i I, beautiful I, I, I totally get it for me i just go if it's if it's a choice between it's the lovely and all through the night i'm going with it's the lovely because once again okay. it slowly also has that kind of sexy pattern to it that's very flirtatious and i'm like i just feel that fits better with the overall tone of the show Fair that point. that this whole Fine. show is very pattery and it, the show 
this show is not a deep show in the way that the song, the lyrics are deep, but the musical tone is not a deep ballady show. This is a show that's built on pop the champagne. Like just like you said, Be Like a Bluebird is like all through the night. It's a much slower tempo, longer held notes yeah. type of song. While the rest of the show is much more, even like, like even the like even the sailing song, Bon Voyage, is dun 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 do 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 do. Like it's even that's a yes. that's a very pe- yeah, peppy yeah. peppy song. Okay, got it. Autumn, what was your number three? Yes, because we've already done my first two. Mm-hmm. There'll always be a lady fair. Always be a lady fair, a Jenny fair or a Sadie fair. There'll always be a lady fair who's waiting there for you. There will always be a lady fair to smooth your troubles and to muss your hair. There'll always be a lady fair who's waiting there for you. That may, that almost made my list. It's misogynistic. It's classist. <laughs> it's Cole Porter going, oof, these people wouldn't have anything interesting to say. I hate it. I hate it. What if there's a nice sailor? Maybe there's one. Maybe, you know, like we, we don't possible. give them anything. We don't give them any credit. Uh, They're hard workers. I just don't, I don't need, I, I don't, I don't need it. Yeah. I, I don't need it. Mm-hmm. I don't, it's too obvious. Mm-hmm. In a musical that is not obvious, it's very obvious. Yeah. Period. Mm-hmm. It's very sledgehammery. That's all I got. Mm-hmm. Marlis, was that your number three or do you have a different? Uh, no, I had similar to the same reason you you had all through the night. I had good goodbye, little dream, goodbye. Goodbye, little dream, goodbye. You made my romance sublime. Now it's time to fly. For the stars have fled from the heavens. The moon's deserted the Because um, it's a really sappy lament, uh, and you know, it's mm-hmm. I want to punch your zippier number. So you Ugh. know, for me, I would keep um, all through the night. This this one I would get rid of. It was more of a meh. Yeah, I totally agree. Hope is a bit of a meh, though. Yeah, she, yeah, she's a very thankless <laughs> character compared to Reno Sweeney and Bonnie slash Irma. Like they all get the flash numbers, and you got Hope wailing away as a soprano. It's kind of like Maria in West Side Story. I mean, you got Anita who's living it up in America and you got... No, you cannot <laughs> compare those. T- do you not. Know, yes. Hope is two-dimensional, but but Maria, I think, has a little bit more than that. Mar- Maria is a step up. Okay, ma- okay maybe Lori. Okay, no, maybe Lori from Oklahoma o- compared to Ado Annie. Lori also has a lot of struggle. Eh, debatable. <laughs> she has a whole orgy scene. <laughs> I'm sorry. She has a ballet, but her songs are the most blandest of the damn show. Like compared to the other female, we've talked about. Oh, that. I hate that. That's on my other list. You know it did. I know it did, and it was the first one on my pro list. So out of my dream. Hope is, hope is just a. She is for me the two-dimensional character. She's very. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
yeah. Yeah. Hope yeah. is hopeless. <laughs> She's just an ingenue. She doesn't yeah. have much more. Yeah, it's that. boring. It's mm-hmm. so, and in a way, Cole Porter, her writing her that way is slightly misogynistic. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because he's not giving her any credit. I do. N- I'm not a big fan of that kind of ingenue. I'm kind of like, Thankfully, we have graduated beyond that type of ingenue. And I've written some much better ones for people, for female actresses to, to tackle. Yes. Um, yes. I mean, there are still some, there's always going to be some problematic ingenue characters. Yes. Inescapable. It's like writing certain male characters a certain way. Like, it just happens. There are certain types in musicals that keep it's cropping up. Complexity within them, though. And yes. I, I, there's not a lot of complexity for hope. No. no. So I think that's that's the issue. Whereas, you know, if you're looking at a male mm-hmm. character that people don't like, Billy Bigelow, yeah. there's a ton of complexity to that, yes. right? Bill Sykes, a ton of complexity. Fagin, a ton of complexity. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Javert. Okay. Javert, yes. Absolutely. They were all on my, my list of villain or hero that I did with a game the other evening. Love that. Okay, so my number three, though, is one of the most pointless songs of the show, which is the cruise song slash Sailor Shanty. I want to row on the crew, mama. That's the thing I want to do, mama. To be known throughout Yale as I walk about it. Get a boil on my tail and then talk about it. I'd like to be a big bloke, mama, and learn that new Argentine stroke, mama. You'll see your slim son putting crimps in the crimson when I row on that varsity crew. A random number that is there just to give the male ensemble something to do and something to sing. It's often either pared down or cut completely. Uh, it is like the pointless version of Blow High, Blow Low. Mm. Blow High, Blow Low at least has some plot relevance. This has no plot relevance. It's just there as a catchy tune by Cole Porter. All right, let's get into the last question, though. Does this musical still have a place today? Should it be revived? Marlise, what do you think? Well, it absolutely has a place today in musical theater culture, as we've seen. I mean, it influences things like advertising. It is, it, it, there's, there's such the nostalgia around this. We've seen countless revivals, four different variations on a book. I think absolutely it is important. Mm-hmm. Um, it's important as a document of theater history, of mm-hmm. Cole Porter, mm-hmm. uh, of the, the queer subtext or barely subtext. I think it really lends itself to thinking about alternative histories of Broadway or bro- histories mm-hmm. that haven't yet been fully told. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's absolutely, you know, uh, examples of subversive counter, um, uh, not quite countercultural, because I think it's actually cultural for, the, mm-hmm. for its moment, but really uh, exciting, brilliant example of, of Porter's genius. Yeah. Now, should it be revived? As we, I think, already discussed, there are some deeply troubling aspects, okay. uh, the ethnic and racial <laughs> stereotypes, the little plum blossom character. Um, all of that, I think, definitely needs to be excised. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd re- I'd love to see a, a radically queer vision version of this musical. Right I, like, and I think it's already there. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much of it was there in what I've saw of the Sutton Foster musical. So mm-hmm. maybe the new new plans will be more of that. Um, I, the the costumes from the Patti Lupone were uh, much more risque mm-hmm. than the ones we saw in the 2011 revival. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And I thought that was interesting. Anyway, so yes, definitely has a place, but must be approached with caution and awareness mm -hmm. of, as Autumn has said, the context within which it was created. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Autumn, your thoughts. Would you ever want to direct a production of this? You know what? I started saying I didn't, and now I do because I want to dive into the queerness of it. I think it would be so great. I'd love to set it in like a, I don't know, a socialite setting where people actually have to dress up to go to the theater again. And it's almost like a dinner party. So they get to be on the boat with you. Mm. So it becomes an immersive experience. I think there's a lot of sexuality to be explored that is not, is not there but is present in so many films now. Like if you look at something like Bridgerton, mm. like to do a Bridgerton version of it, you know? And I hate that that is the only context I can come up with right now, but I, I just rewatched it. It's a very it. relevant. Um, but just, you know, flirt the flirtation of it and mm -hmm. the idea of like, and maybe doing some of it with drag, like having some people in drag I think, you know, this idea of performativity, performativity as an idea of rebellion, mm -hmm. I think can go really far in this piece. I think, you know, even, even recontextualizing the plum blossom, maybe there's something to it that even plum blossom is a con artist. Like you add in a little narrative mm -hmm. that she becomes part of the plot. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but there's something. Surprise, she's in the brig with Moonface <laughs> and Billy. Well, maybe she's one of the con artists. P potentially. You I mean, know what I mean? She doesn't like, appear in the show. She's just a like, that uh, England reveals. So bring her into the story. Give her some agency. Yeah. And I mean, if you look at films from that time, there was there were stereotypes that were being... Uh, created mm -hmm. um but I, I think we just need to look at it um through a queer lens and I, when i say queer i mean all things queer mm -hmm. like looking at his parties and mm -hmm. you know the people who would come to his parties and create that party and go from there because i think i think there's a lot to discover in this piece still and I don't think you can do it on Broadway in the same way. No. I, think it, I think you have to be, I think you have to do it in a new way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you've got to take it out of the big Broadway house and you got to do some experimental work with it. Well, it's, um, it, it begs to be tactile. Mm -hmm. yeah. it, mm -hmm. it, it begs to be tactile. Arcadi, rent a boat, let's do an immersive production. Oh, Arcadi. He, he probably, you know what, Arcadi, I'll talk to you. I'll pitch this to you along with our Colm, Colm Wilkinson Man of La Mancha production. I'll pitch them both to you. That's yeah, right. Prison. Yeah. <laughs> well, be great. I think it'd be very interesting. Autumn, there is a steamboat in Muskoka that you could rent, probably, that, that you can rent. And do oh, there's many steamboats. We have a whole steamboat exhibit. It's there. I'm working with them, so... You should pitch them doing this musical on one of their boats. That or showboat, Mac, is next on my list. Oh, boy. Go I don't know if Muskoka is ready. Um, although the cottagers might be. <laughs> might be a... The cottagers absolutely would be. Trust me, I know some of those cottagers. They would totally would get into this. They'd be into it. It might get them off their islands. Yeah, exactly. It'd be fun. Yeah. Um, I'm for it. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, for me, I... Yes. I mean, this easily has a place in musical theater history. Like it is 
It has some of the most recognizable songs in the entire musical theater canon. It's a staple of what really exemplifies what an American musical is. Like when you say American musical, I guarantee you a lot of people will first think of Anything Goes as one of those easily first come to thought bubbles that show up. Uh, and, and I mean, like you can easily revive this show. It, it, it's, it, it's a moneymaker. It's like, if you want to produce something that's going to make you money, you can do it experimentally, like autumn suggestions, or I can easily see another big Broadway revival with yeah. name your current Broadway Beltris. Uh, and yes, revive this uh, show. Easily bring it back. This is a great post-COVID party musical. Going to get everybody back in the feels again. It'd be great. Uh, but party. party. But yeah, thank you all for listening, joining us on this seafaring voyage. Uh, we Boy. hope you had a fun time tap dancing along with us. Marlies, thank you for helping. Oh, Mar- Marlies, we want to give you a chance to plug all your good stuff. So give us a load. Now, where can people find and follow you? Where can they get your books? Oh, well, um, you can find me. They can find me, uh, I guess, sitting at home, mm-hmm. which is where I'm do- doing email. Um, no, I, I am at York University. I'm in the Department of Theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can find me through that website. I also, um, you can find my books, I guess, on Amazon or wherever you, maybe not Amazon. I don't know that they carry them in the local bookstore, but uh, check out some other sites that where you can order academic style books. Mm-hmm. Uh, and other than that, I'm I, not a big social media person necessarily so that's okay <laughs> um, but but um mac and autumn this has been such a delight thank you so much for inviting me to to, to have this conversation you with you coming. you'll have to come back you're totally coming back for more appearances all right i love that yeah <laughs> trust me we know your school schedule so we can get you in the off seasons when you're not teaching uh-oh uh-oh we do a lot in the summer we for do. example we we did an entire season recorded in one summer Amazing. thanks to COVID so absolutely we're gonna get you back for more uh we want to quit, send a quick thanks out to our theme music composer, composer Mr. Brody Weld for his continued contributions to our podcast uh follow him and all his music at Father Flozis listen to, listen to his many tracks and albums he's releasing my favorite is still by far Home Decor which is which is his rap about household furniture and being stuck at home with a baby during COVID it's great uh, <laughs> uh, you can follow before the downbeat at all social media platforms. Uh, you can follow us on Patreon as well, where Autumn and I do all types of fun extra stuff. Movie musical commentaries. Maybe we'll watch one of the film versions of Anything Goes. Maybe that 1956 really wacky version that was done. Maybe uh, not. Maybe not. <laughs> who knows? We'll do a top ten list for you once a month. Where who knows? We'll rank the top ten Broadway belters mm. uh, or Broadway divas. Uh, and then we also do uh, theater news reviews where we'll break down the latest news in theater. So, like, when's it coming back? What's going on? That right now is epic. Mm-hmm. Oh, lots yeah. of stuff going on there. Lots of stuff going on there. I mean, just this past week or so, they announced that Come From Away is getting a film version coming out this September in honor of the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Well, so, it's also opened uh, back up in Australia. Yes. So, yes, follow us there. Autumn, where can they find and follow you and your companies and your various works? All the many companies I have. The best one now is to follow me at Timber Beast Productions, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Facebook, mm-hmm. Instagram. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do awesome performances on the wharf mm-hmm. in Muskoka. 
and Gravenhurst. And uh, the sister company is Littlewood Smith. Uh, that's littlewoodsmith.com. And that is the educational wing of the company. And Autumn DM Smith at all the places. Love that it. Is Love it. All, you can- the, all the things. Mm-hmm. You, Mackenzie Horner? Well, they can find and follow me at Mackenzie Horner. Just look for the ginger haired photograph. You can't miss me. Also, follow my antics at Cup of Hemlock, where I host uh, bi monthly review shows. Uh, but yeah, you can watch that. You can watch the Richard III scene I directed uh, and all other types of fun stuff. So, Chuck Cup of Hemlock, check it out. Uh, Yay. And I think that is it, everybody. Thank you all for another fun episode. And remember, and remember, although we are not great romancers, we are bound to answer when you propose. Anything, Anything goes. goes. Bye. Au revoir. Bon voyage. Bye.